good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema. So good morning. We are now two weeks out from Godzilla vs. Kong. And my last two episodes uh, focused on the film, but not really in serving in anything in the way of, of a review. Uh, I was discussing something that I saw emerging even while watching this motion picture and also hearing people around me speaking about it. And that is uh, the concern that the film was just so chopped down and uh, bereft of, of really any kind of human subplot or, or any, not even that. It's just character development. And what concerns me about this is that people are now okay with demanding more monster stuff and less people. Folks, there really are no people in this. I mean, it's, it's already painted with such a wide brush and we're being conditioned to continue dumbing this stuff down. And look, I can go from the start of this film all the way through to the end, which really the, the ending, the last 12 minutes of the film are really what delivers. And there is a terrific article by Variety that I'm posting in the show notes, which explains this completely. And we've discussed in my previous episode, so I'm not going to recap all of that, uh, the the issues with Godzilla versus Kong, uh, the the lack of story, and also the imbalance of the series altogether. I mean, let's face it: the the original Showa series, which ran from 1954 to 1975, it wasn't exactly uh, painted very heavily with with well done characters or deep plots. I got asked by somebody on social media, a friend, who said, you know, something along the line of. Yeah, well, uh, I hate to be the wet blanket here, excuse me, but isn't that why we go to see monster movies is just to watch big monsters crash and boom? And in my last episode, I addressed this directly by saying the answer is no. I mean, yeah, there is an element to that, but is that all you want from Jaws? Just one repeated shark attack after another without the story of the Indianapolis and Brody and Hooper? You don't want any of those characters? You want less of those? And, and the same with Star Wars or Star Trek. I mean, again, the most beloved Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. You just want it to be one endless space battle between the Enterprise and the Reliant? Or just one long continuous fight scene between Kirk and Khan without any character development? Let's just get Khan off the planet to fight Kirk and get him on a ship together. Or bring Kirk down to the planet and, uh, you know, just have him fight for two hours. No, we don't want that. We think we want that. But we really don't. And out of all of this, I'm going to give you an example. In 1998, as all Godzilla fans know, they released the abomination from Roland Emmerich and it was called Godzilla. And it really wasn't Godzilla. And, and I've said in previous podcasts that there was even a moment in Godzilla GMK, uh, the 2003 release, where it opens up with a military briefing and they discuss a giant monster attack on New York. And they say, oh, wow, was, you know, was that Godzilla? And the two, mili two military men speak and they say, well, the Americans say it was Godzilla, but we don't think it was. Less than a year and a half, Toho's reaction was, was concern that this new Godzilla, despite how badly received the 1998 film was, you're talking now about a whole generation that did not grow up on the Godzilla films and will accept this Godzilla known as Zilla or Gino, Godzilla in name only, that this will become the new image of Godzilla. So they quickly refuted that 
And they came out with Godzilla Millennium, or in America, it was called Godzilla 2000. It was mandated by Toho that Sony had to give it a theatrical release. Now, I went to go see it in theaters in a matinee, and uh, there, there might have been 40 people in the whole theater. It, it wasn't expected that Godzilla 2000 was going to make any kind of, of bank at the box office. But it was a response to the 1998 film, which had zero character development, uh, a wrongly picked uh, action hero star, and just some really, really bad acting across the board. But in this film, when I'm sitting there watching it, there, there, it was your standard Godzilla movie. I can't say Godzilla 2000 was ranks up there with one of the best Godzilla films. And as I've said in previous podcasts, the Godzilla series from 1954 all the way uh, through through the present uh, is is very uneven. And there are only a handful of truly great films. Now, so far in the MonsterVerse, I am going to say that it is King of the Monsters and it is Kong Skull Island, which I feel are, are the best Godzilla films. And that's not taking away from the 2014 Gareth Edwards film, but the problem there was is we had Godzilla for, I think, like a whopping 10 minutes or so in that movie. So I'm sitting in Godzilla 2000 in the theater, and I'm watching it. And invariably in all the old Godzilla movies, there's almost always a scene somewhere along the line, not all of them, where a military person comes up against a scientific person, a science scientist. And uh, the line or the dialogue usually goes along the line of, all you, the scientists will yell at the military, all you want to do is kill Godzilla. You don't want to study him. It's always some kind of exchange like that. And it happened in Godzilla 2000. Well, in a very mystery science theater kind of way, because I was sitting in the back middle of the theater, way down in front was this row and this little boy all silhouetted. I couldn't tell you what the kid looked like, couldn't tell you what his father looked like. But this little boy stood up in his seat Like it took him some effort. He must have been eight years old. And he stood up in his seat and he pointed at the screen and he yelled, no one can kill Godzilla. And then he looked down at his father and he goes, right, dad? And you just see these arms come up and pick up this little boy and place him gently back in his seat like, okay, son, enough. And it was a great moment because those are the moments I remember in watching Godzilla movies. You loved Godzilla and you didn't want to see him harmed uh, by the military. And in Godzilla vs. Kong, there is absolutely no moment like this whatsoever. And the biggest problem with Godzilla vs. Kong is, Godzilla vs. Kong is not a Godzilla movie. It is a Kong movie, for sure. The only development of character and any type of empathy for the monsters goes to Kong. And they they worked it out, I'm telling you, that at least the, this cut. Now, we know for sure that there is the possibility of another cut of Godzilla versus Kong. Uh, Adam Wingard says out of one side of his mouth, this theatrical release is his baby and uh, it's the definitive version. And yet he will tell also to the press that there's enough footage for a five, five and a half hour cut. So which is it? My strong opinion is that Godzilla versus Kong went under the knife over the year that it was delayed. Uh, They used the pandemic as an excuse. Uh, They probably came back with uh, negative notes or less than stellar sneak preview uh, reviews and scorecards. And they wanted to make sure they did not end up 
with a perceived disappointment as King of the Monsters was. Despite how much money King of the Monsters made, it was being declared a financial disappointment. So I think they got their hands on Godzilla vs. Kong and whittled this down. But there are no moments here. And Godzilla is just portrayed as this prehistoric, very uh, brutish kind of monster. And nothing like how they went out of their way to paint him in uh, the original 2014 film and also in King of the Monsters as a firm but benevolent ruler. And um, it's just a mess. And I'm not going to turn this into a review. So you're asking, well, what about all of this and creating these extended universes? And I've talked about this as well, too, where Universal tried to do this with their classic monsters, their universal monsters, and it didn't work out so well and it crashed and burned because everybody is trying to ape the Disney Marvel machine. And that's a problem. You can't fit all of these franchises into the Disney Marvel machine process and expect the same results. Marvel is its own thing, and it cannot be applied to the other venues. Look, we're seeing this now. The number one problem that people had with Joss Whedon's Justice League is that there was just nothing there. It was stupid, they said. It was a lot of crash and boom. Uh, The character development wasn't there. So Zack Snyder got a chance to get a redo. He got a mulligan on this, and we got the Snyder Cut, and that's great, And then you add others that go, oh my God, it's four hours, it's over four hours, it's too long. Look, you're never going to have it both ways. But I'm seeing a disturbing trend starting here. And the trend is, we're going to release a theatrical version, and it may not be the best, but we're going to release it for what we feel is the best box office potential. Now, if it's not a 100% crowd pleaser, but it, it does manage to make its money back and cut out a profit for us, Well, then we have the ability to go back and release different versions. There can be a director version. There could be a studio cut version. There can be a fan version. We we can go on and on and on. And then there's the definitive version. And I've talked about this in my other podcasts with films like uh, even such as The Exorcist uh, Part 2. The Exorcist Part 2 was taken out of theaters during its initial theatrical run and re-edited because it was just considered so terrible and they thought they could fix it. That's not what I'm talking about here. Um, Blade Runner really seems to have set the tone for multiple cuts. We have the theatrical, then we have a director's version, then we have the definitive version, and then we have the final cut. And this goes on and on and on. I'm willing to bet you could still get another cut out of Blade Runner. So, I mean, I, I own, I think, the original and the what is called the final cut, but I don't know. What what one do I watch? What What one works? And studios don't really care about this, I don't think. I think the fact is they want to be sure to cover their bases. So by releasing multiple cuts, and look, we're seeing this. We're now seeing this now with House of a Thousand Corpses, Mrs. Doubtfire. People are going back, release this cut, release that cut, hashtag release the blank cut. That's all you have to do now. I will not be surprised if down the road, whether a year, uh, two years, or even when it finally hits DVD, that we will see a very different version available for Godzilla vs. Kong along with its theatrical release. So we see this desire to create these extended universes and it seems, this is funny also, it's very interesting. At the end of every one of these MonsterVerse films, there's always a, well, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see if there are any more. 
And it's like they're deliberately baiting the fan base to get them all worked up to demand another one to show or justify. Now, I don't know who's doing that. If that's Warner's, Legendary, I don't really see Legendary doing it, or Toho. Uh, Toho, it seems, has kind of like a, a very loose contract with Legendary, uh, where it's almost like a picture-per-picture basis, depending upon the financial return on the film. Uh, they have their their protocols in this contract, but I don't have the details of it, but that's what it seems. But sequel, 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 extended universe. See, it's not just so much now about making sequels. Because sequels, you have to understand, sequels do not have to all dovetail and fit in to create an extended universe. There is a very big difference between an extended universe in a franchise and sequels. So if you look at Alien, I'm going to go to Jaws 2 in a moment, but if you look at the Alien franchise, we have really an odd bit of sequel and extended universe put together. I mean, Ripley was the original story. And so we have Alien. And I don't know if Alien was ever conceived to have a sequel, but it made money. So they made a sequel. And the sequel really uh, enlarged the Alien universe and, and gave far more. We got a queen out of it. We got Ripley's backstory of, of missing a daughter. So I'm going to say that Aliens also struck an extended universe tone. Now, I don't know what's going on with the Ridley Scott prequels between Prometheus and Covenant, and we don't even know what's coming next in that. They, while Covenant was coming out, they were already talking about a direct sequel to Aliens, which would get rid of all the other films. You, you see, this becomes a real mess, and it becomes a mess because studios don't have their shit together, and they're not sitting down and going, what is the best way? to go with this, that we make a quality motion picture and yet we make money because that is the bottom line and we please our fan base. So I put on Twitter a couple days ago uh, that it was Jaws 2 that really gave a lustrous shine and uh, legitimized sequels. And I think that's important. No, now, look, I am not saying that Jaws 2 is the first sequel. I, I need you to listen to me on this. Sequels have been around since the start of film. Look, Frankenstein, for example, spawned how many sequels? The 1931 film. And you could argue that Universal then created an extended universe out of that. When you started getting the mashups and the spinoffs and uh, Frankenstein verses and, and all of that stuff, uh, it's kind of an extended universe. But they all don't really shoehorn in. The canon of the stories get shifted and it's very weird. You know, when you get to like the House of Frankenstein and the House of Dracula, uh, the original stories just seem to go back to kind of like Godzilla and that is, well, it all started with this, but then the stories that took place in between are very, very different. But Jaws 2 let studios know what they were missing because sequel was kind of a dirty word in Hollywood. Hollywood made them Look, it's kind of like this. A lot of studio executives, they love porn. And they make movies that are just like high-level movies that are just on the verge of being called porn. You could argue that Basic Instinct is nothing more than softcore porn. Nine and a half weeks. Uh, Last Tango in Paris. Whatever you want. They put A-list stars in there and that's how they get away with it. And, uh, you know, but if you go out as a filmmaker and cast a porn star... In your movie, like if you're an indie filmmaker, a lot of these distributors and studios, they, they look down on that. 
unless it's some serious stunt casting or you're Tarantino or somebody that can get away with it, the the hypocrisy is there. Oh, we we don't deal with that. That's that's a that's porn is dirty. Well, it's kind of like the same way with sequels. Yeah, the Thin Man series had a bunch of sequels. Like I said, the Universal Monsters had sequels. Uh, Hammer, you know, was cranking them out left and right with Christopher Lee as Dracula and so on and so on. There are plenty of sequels, but it doesn't mean that the studio really liked making them. They made money and that's all that mattered. And the quality of these sequels varied. And go back and take a look, especially with Frankenstein. I'm going to argue that The Bride of Frankenstein is where the entire Frankenstein original Universal series peaked. That was it. Bride of Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein was superior, in my opinion, to the original Frankenstein. And because it expanded the monster's world and gave us far more and took us in a very different direction. And that's what a good sequel should do. So then you come along and you have Jaws. Jaws is the first big blockbuster. It is the first film to make $100 million in six weeks. It was a marketing juggernaut and it changed the way how summer films will be released forever. If you keep in mind, up until that point, a film like The Godfather would start in a handful of theaters in limited release and it would take a year for The Godfather to stay in theaters and make its way out. There was no really no home video. All of that stuff, it didn't happen at that time. But Jaws came along and changed it all. And people are lining, that's where the word blockbuster, they were lining up around the block. They're going to break the block, okay? And Jaws changed it all. And suddenly now studios all want their blockbusters. And since Jaws made not just some money, but a fuck ton of money, well, now maybe a sequel is in order. Now, Steven Spielberg is on record as saying, I will not do a Jaws 2 because it's really nothing more than a cheap carnival trick. That's what he equated a sequel to Jaws as. But he knew Universal is going to make one. And he went off to make Close Encounters and he took Richard Dreyfuss with him. Now, the original story, you can go back and uh, listen uh, to my podcast on Jaws 2, just when you thought it was cinema. Um, And you can take a listen to that and you can hear the whole backstory to Jaws 2. But the original idea was very, very different and very dark. But Universal started looking at the dailies. They saw the direction of the script and the the original director, John Hancock, and they realized, we don't want to mess with formulae. We want to give the audience what it came for and more of what was in the original film. So they changed everything. They changed the look. They fired the director. They rewrote the script. And we got the Jaws 2 that we now have. And it's a very different film. The original plan for Jaws 2 was really very artistic. And in my opinion, if they had done it the way that it was supposed to be and envisioned, we would have had a film that might have eclipsed Jaws and been better than Jaws. Instead, we got Jaws 2.0. And uh, it's it's a paint-by-numbers committee-made film. And it's a serviceable sequel. Jaws 2 is not cinema. It's made well. It was made uh, with the intent to entertain. The production value is incredible. There's no doubt about that. But suddenly now, we have sequels and a new word called franchise. That's what Jaws 2 did. It gave word to, or a a form, a, a, a gelling of the word franchise. Now think about it. There is absolutely no mistake in the rise of the word franchise at this time with Jaws 2. Fast food was taking over the nation. It's been around with us for a long time, pretty much ever since cars came around. Uh, However, 
uh, franchise was now a permanent word in our lexicon. And if it's good enough for fast food, then it's good enough for the movie industry. And so Star Wars came along. And not only did it show that we need a sequel because Star Wars then kicked Jaws off the number one film list, but Star Wars brought with it an incredible merchandising campaign. And unlike Jaws, Jaws 2 had a merchandising campaign. A lot of people don't realize that. There was a comic uh, that was based on the original screenplay, oddly enough, not based on the film that was released. If you can get your hands on that, you can find panels of it online. Very, very different movie, I'm telling you. Uh, but there were posters you could color. I had them. Uh, trading cards, bubblegum cards, all of that stuff. The I know there was Jaws merch, but it, it wasn't really big in 1975. And they did develop the Jaws game, but that was really it. It, it didn't go nuts like Jaws 2 was going, but it wouldn't go the way that Star Wars went, where the toys were, you just couldn't even keep them on the shelves. And Lucas built an entire empire just off the toys. So Hollywood woke up. By the late 70s, Hollywood woke up to the the incredible potential of multiple sequels and stitching them into what we now call an extended universe. So this is what we're seeing with Godzilla vs. Kong. Um, Jaws 2 was the dumbed-down version of Jaws. It's a serviceable sequel. I like Jaws 2. But it doesn't have the heart or the depth, or the characters. Look, you look at the poster for Jaws, and look at the three names on the poster. Then look at the three names on the poster for Jaws 2. It's not like you have a very heavy-hitting cast for Jaws 2, and you know that the story is going to be weaker. There really isn't much of a human story in Jaws 2, except for Brody's torment. That is about it. So then we go further. Spielberg and Lucas have now change the way films have been made. And they give rise to what Scorsese will call uh, the theme park movie. And way back in around 2007, 2008, both Lucas and Spielberg gave an interview in which they predicted the future of theatrical film and exhibition. And they said, eventually movie tickets will go up to like a Broadway ticket in price. Uh, there'll be like $100, $150 a ticket, but you're going to get a major giant movie for this. All small films will be relegated to the small screen. Uh, the emerging technology of streaming at that time and DVD, whatever, home video, that's where the smaller films will go. And there is a great moment in Godzilla vs. Kong, which clearly illustrates the theme park moment. And if you watch Screen Junkie's Honest Trailer, of Godzilla versus Kong, they even got it too. They saw it when I was sitting in the theater and it's one when one of those uh, heave vehicles comes shooting out of the hollow earth, which I'll get to later, that ridiculous concept, but comes flying out and we're going through the point of view. Like you could see this if this were in 3D or IMAX, this is an event because we're following the trajectory of the vehicle as it shoots out toward the camera. We go behind it, following it from behind, right past Kong's face, right past Godzilla's face. I think it might even pass through his teeth or damn close and then out. It's like a ride. You could see yourself sitting at a theme park watching this giant 3D experience or a virtual reality experience and being sucked right into it. 
we're going to go back to Jurassic World. You have three Jurassic Park movies, which are sequels. Are they necessarily extended universes? Not yet. However, by Jurassic World, we enter the extended universe uh, realm. And that is Jurassic World actually went back and cannibalized literal scenes and just reshot them, set them up to look the same. And there are videos on YouTube where you can go and see on the left is from Jurassic Park. On the right is from Jurassic World. And folks, they're the same thing. And I'm not even talking about the logic gaps in here of a plot. There is no real human plot in Jurassic World. It's more pack on the dinosaurs. We give you some plot that makes you think it's smarter than what it is. But all Jurassic World is, is a to-do list. And Colin Trevorrow is not really directing it. He's managing this movie. And that is, you can see that the studio, Universal, sat down and said, we want this, we want to get them to here. By this point in the movie, they should be there. Give us this, 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 and this. Because we also need to adapt this shit into our theme parks. We need a new dinosaur. We need a river raft ride. Whatever it may be, we need a pterodactyl experience. What, whatever it's going to be, we need to also think of our theme parks. Scorsese isn't wrong. And unfortunately, they like painting Scorsese out to be the old man shaking his fist or yelling at clouds, that kind of thing. Uh, he's old, white, and entitled. He's rich. No, Scorsese is an artist who truly loves artistic cinema. And he's saying there's nothing wrong with any of this. There's nothing wrong with superhero movies. But stop treating them like they are cuisine when really what they are is fast food. And that's the whole point of this podcast, folks. The whole point of this is, is to get you to wake up and not, you don't have to like something or dislike something because of this podcast, but simply use your brains. Use critical thinking to understand what you are watching. That's what I want people to learn from this podcast, to know what you're seeing, process it and say, okay, yeah, I get this for what it is. I'll give you an example. This morning on Twitter, uh, somebody talked, they were revisiting Pretty Woman and I wrote, I really hope you enjoy it, which I do. It's a movie and if you like it, fine. But don't try to tell me it's a Cinderella story. Don't try to tell me it's some story from the heart and that it's, it's a good sentimental story with a great moral lesson. This is a movie about a fucking whore. Okay, and she fell in love with the guy only because he's good looking and he's wealthy. If Richard Gere had been any of you, a regular workaday schlub, would she have fallen for him? No. Cinderella wasn't out, you know, performing sexual acts before the ball and afterwards. Okay, so don't tell me it's one thing. And I'm not being sexist and I'm not being misogynist. Pretty Woman is not about female empowerment. No matter how badly you want it to be, it is not. In fact, it sets women's rights back and their, their stature in Hollywood by a good 10, 15 years. And I don't even know if that time frame is right. I don't see anything great about Pretty Woman. It's, it's a well-made film. Julia Roberts is a fine enough actress, so is Richard Gere. I get why it made money. But don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining. And that goes right into Star Trek Into Darkness, another franchise that is doing the same thing. Star Trek is built on the human story. That's why the TV series worked. Don't go telling me that the TV series was, you know, got a letter writing campaign to bring it back 
because, well, you know, it was those stellar special effects on the Star Trek TV series. Because if that's the case, I don't know what Saturday Night Live was doing when they were spoofing it in the 70s and onward. If you look at how they spoof it, the effects are always terrible with models on strings. So don't give me that. And if it was so much about the, the stories, the biggest mistake, the weakest one next to Star Trek V of the original series, probably all of them, is the motion picture. Because why? They focused on big special effects scenes and not enough on the characters. And that's what people complained about. I want to see the relationship between Kirk and Spock. I want to see more of the interactions and the arguments between Spock and Dr. McCoy. And instead, we got lots of big screen moments. I mean, that scene where Kirk is taken to the Enterprise by Scotty. I mean, how long is that scene? Where they're moving around the Enterprise because that is, God damn it, we're going to get our money for these special effects. That's the money shot. And I get also, no, other people will say, no, that's because Kirk is such a bond and Scotty is such a bond with the Enterprise. That's great if you're a deep-seated fan. But if you were a casual watcher like I was sitting in the motion picture, this is why I fell asleep for seven to ten minutes. Okay, that's exactly why. So when you go into Star Trek Into Darkness... What they did in 2008, 2009, when J.J. Abrams rebooted the series, which it needed, the Star Trek franchise was faltering big time. You started the next generation with Generations, Star Trek Seven Generations, and I have a whole episode on that called Kirk, Picard, or Cinema, and I'll, you can go into that. But the next generation film series never really aspired, or I, maybe they aspired, but they never hit the marks that the original series films did. They never hit those high character marks. So it was time for an enema for Star Trek. And J.J. Abrams, in one of the few times that I'll speak highly about his, his talent, is that he did it. They pulled off an incredible trick. And the Star Trek reboot with Chris Pine, uh, it was brilliant. I sat there going, wow. I mean, I mean, the story wasn't the greatest, but they did something really cool. They did a cinematic hat trick which allowed them now to basically go back, revisit the entire original series and tell it all over again, fresh and new with a whole new perspective. So in Star Trek Into Darkness, what did they do? They fucking remade The Wrath of Khan and they remade it badly. And that's just laziness. And the film is so bad that J.J. Abrams pretty much ignores it in Star Trek Beyond. I don't remember anybody referencing anything from Star Trek Into Darkness in Star Trek Beyond. So then we go right into Terminator Genesis. And you can hear about all of this in detail under my episode called Reimaginings, Repackagings, Rebootings, something like that. It's one of my earlier episodes. And uh, it's it's just goes into detail on all these franchises. And then you've got Terminator Genesis, which basically did what Jurassic World did. And that is they went back took the best scenes out of the original first two motion pictures and remade them. Literally reshot them with different actors doing the same kind of action and packaged that into a really shitty movie. It was bad. And so we're seeing less character development and more get-to-the-goods filmmaking. That's all it is. Remember those best scenes from Terminator 1 and 2? Well, here they are again with different actors, and we're going to make you think we're giving you a whole fresh new movie. Folks, wake up. And then we go into Star Wars Disney. We had the prequels, 
And I am no big fan of the prequels. I'm not saying they're bad because production-wise, they are beautiful, they're exquisite, top-end special effects, music, production, sound, all of that. And many good actors in it, including Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan, who I, I just thought was brilliant. I thought it was terrific. So I'm not really bashing on that part of it. But they weren't really the Star Wars of the original trilogy. And we had such a good time with those. Even though we saw where things were going by Return of the Jedi with the Ewoks and the silliness and the dumbing down of that plot line. And basically Return of the Jedi was already setting us up that it was almost a remake of Star Wars because we have yet again another attack on a Death Star. Well, in Force Awakens, we go in, it's like fast food. So here we go, franchise. It's like fast food again. You go into a fast food restaurant, you're so hungry, and man, you order it up. You get your Big Mac, your Whopper, whatever it is, and you gorge down, and I'm telling you, all of you, I think, understand that first bite into that sandwich, oh, It's so good, especially when you are hungry. And then you eat it and you drink that soda and you throw down those fries and you eat that apple pie or dessert, whatever it may be, you are satiated and it feels good. And then you're driving home and you start to feel the first rumbles in your belly and you feel that fogginess in your head. And maybe about two, three hours later, you're sitting on the toilet on your phone because what tasted so good is not leaving you so well. And that's what I equate with The Force Awakens. And somebody online on Twitter uh, contested me and said, The Force Awakens is in no way a remake of Star Wars. The Force Awakens is really, it opens by letting you know, this will not be the prequels. We are taking you back to the original story and letting you know all is well and all will be okay. Even the very first line of The Force Awakens, which uh, Max von Sydow says, it's something along the lines of things are changing, things are different. That's letting you know, that's a cue to the audience. You're back in safe hands. And The Force Awakens gives us everything we want. And really, what is it about? Well, okay, it's about a group of rebels that plan an attack on a seemingly impregnable uh, space station looking for a defect in its structure to blow it up and save uh, the Rebel Alliance uh, from a vastly Nazi authoritarian uh, dictatorship regime headed by uh, a Dark Lord and also his supernatural overlord. Wow, that sounds familiar, don't you think? And yet tell me how this is not a remake What, just because it counts as a sequel? The Force Awakens and Disney are doing exactly what uh, basically Jurassic World and also Terminator Genesis did. So there was this great uh, Mashable article, and I don't consider Mashable uh, something along the line of of high journalism, but it was a very smarmy uh, article. Uh, It's called, uh, let's see here, I have it right in front. And that is five questions for anyone who calls Star Wars The Force Awakens a remake. Guess what, buddy? I am. So here's what it is. Chris Taylor wrote this, and I have provided a link in my show notes. So the first question is, have you seen the original? Yes, I have. And I can tell you I just summed up the plot. And it draws on itself from a number of World War II, Hero Journey, John Campbell, the whole thing, Kurosawa, Kurosawa, the the whole thing. I've seen it. And yes, I have seen the original film and I know what it's about. 
And all of it is basically the same. And the second question is, how well do you know Darth Vader? Well, I can tell you what, thanks to those prequels, we know him too much. We have way too much of Darth Vader. And Vader is really, I should say, uh, Kylo Ren is really nothing more than Darth Vader light. He even down to mimicking Darth Vader's voice. How is this not a remake? Bro, number three, bro, do you even Star Wars? And he says, you may rightly call elements of The Force Awakens derivative when it comes to Starkiller base. It's not derivative. This is a remake, bro. That's what this is. They're taking the audience back. They're, they are not breaking any new ground. Hell, we even have a creature cantina scene in this with uh, the, the, the lady, uh, Maz, I believe, who is uh, basically the stand-in for Yoda. Have you seen The Force Awakens more than once? That's the fifth question. And the answer is, unfortunately, yes. And I hold my position. The Force Awakens is a sequel, but really it's a remake disguised as a sequel. And if you're not using critical thinking, that Mashable article, I, I challenge you to read it, does nothing to support this writer's theory or hypothesis or stance. All it is, is I'm a fan and this is what I believe, and this is what you should believe. There is no data in that article to support The Force Awakens is not a remake. I can right now, as I've just done in the last five minutes on this podcast, I can cite more examples as to why The Force Awakens is a remake than he can saying it is not. Look, riding on a Harry Potter theme park ride is not the same thing as experiencing the books of that story or the films. Just because you rode a Harry Potter roller coaster or did a 3D experience riding some broom doesn't mean that you've experienced the films or the books. And that goes with comic books. The original stories, the characters, reading all of their their interrelationships and the stories over the years, that's not the same as riding the theme park ride films. Just because you've seen every Avengers movie, the comic book readers who read them since they were kids will tell you, while I enjoyed the films, there is a whole other world to be discovered, whether it's X-Men or Marvel, uh, you know, with the, the heroes as Iron Man and Thor, whatever it is. There's more to it because there's far more character development and the films are not there to do that. They please. And that's the question of late. Just who is the audience for for these films? And I'll go back to Godzilla vs. Kong. Just who was that movie for? Was Godzilla vs. Kong for the little kids like that little boy? No one can kill Godzilla, right, Dad? Or was it for somebody my age? 30 and up. The fanboys, the ones that are going to go out and buy the Funko Pops and the the characters and the and the, the Nika, uh, you know, figures and all of that stuff. Because little kids can't do that. They can get them as gifts, but it's always somebody older buying them. So who is really this audience for these films? Yes, we are being duped, and we're not seeing it. This is a they live kind of thing. It happens, and we just fall into it. We need to see movies through sunglasses because we might as well just see consume on the screen otherwise. And I've talked about this previously in a two-part episode called Consuming Cinema. The difference between popcorn and just plain product is a thin one, okay? Yes, you can have your popcorn. I like the Godzilla movies or check your brain at the door entertainment. I wasn't looking for anything deep, but I also was not looking for 
for that razor-thin, shallow puddle either. And this is what my cinema podcast is all about. There's nothing wrong with a theme park ride, and there's nothing wrong with McDonald's, but if that's what you're going to base your life on, and that's all you're going to see of Disney or any amusement park, then you've got a very, very, very myopic view of things. There's nothing wrong with McDonald's, but if that is going to become your main source of nutrition, you got a problem. Just don't mistake either for something greater or better than what they are. We are being duped. The multi-cuts of films, like I said, is this deliberate? It's a covering of bases, I'm telling you. A way to reach every demographic. And multi-cuts are very different, as I said, that I alluded to, than what they did with Exorcist to The Heretic, or for when they edit them for TV, which I don't support. You don't put, I've gone through this as well for editing TV or, or edited for TV or censorship. Um, there's a big difference there. I don't support that. And I don't believe in adding deleted scenes back to a movie on TV just to make up for running time. Make the film right in the first place. Make it correct in the first place. And that goes also for going back and remaking films. Go back and remake the bad ones. Somebody go back and remake Jaws 3. Make it right. Don't remake Jaws. Remake Jaws 3. The same with all those shitty Halloween films. In my opinion, there's only one really good one, and that's the original John Carpenter film. The others are varying, and and we can get into that, especially what I will always stand by, the overrated, overloved 1981 Halloween 2. Just make the film right in the first place, folks. Look, the rush to home video, I've talked about this in previous podcasts in the early 80s. Look, this gave rise to the restored and remastered and and all the things that, you know, to fix the mistakes kind of cut. That was a product out to the consumer because they rushed originally to get all these films out on home video to make a quick cash grab. And they were really shitty transfers to a lot of these films. Pan and scan, grainy copies, washed out color. And then you, they just they saw, ooh, if now we can do this and we can make a Blu-ray and then we can make a steel book and we can do this, 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 and this, and this, and milk, 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 milk the audience. Scorsese is right. As I said, he's not an angry man shaking his fist at clouds or an entitled white filmmaker. Scorsese has been sounding a warning and it's a warning against his own fellow filmmakers as I talked about with Spielberg and Lucas who created this entire blockbuster mentality. Now if a movie doesn't make a hundred million dollars in its opening weekend it's a disappointment. It's got to go out and crush. Small films will vanish from the big screens. Spielberg and Lucas really caused this. They created this blockbuster mentality and the irony of it all is that both men will be gone from the landscape when their predictions finally really truly take hold. As for something even like Blockbuster, the movie picking experience was kind of one of the last breaths of a cultural binding. Watching a film is an experience to be shared, enjoyed, savored like a good meal. You don't savor a Big Mac. You suck that shit down. You chomp on it and you gorge on it. However, eating a fine meal in a beautiful restaurant with great atmosphere and good friends, that is an experience. Fast food is to be consumed and shit out. Don't let this happen with our films and our entertainment because that's what I did 
with Godzilla vs. Kong, Disney Star Wars, Star Trek Into Darkness, Terminator Genesis, and Jurassic World. I went in, I shoved my mouth full of this stuff, and then I took a big healthy dump afterwards, and it wasn't pleasant or pretty. I leave you with that imagery. This is Harrison Smith. Thank you for listening. I look forward to talking to you again very soon. Thank you.